I just remember, in a way, running kind of changed my life because I always felt like I could have gone into the other direction where I, you know, maybe wouldn't have got a scholarship to NEU, maybe would have got a college degree or gone to the Olympics, all these things. But yeah, I don't know what I would be doing if I wasn't running. And it's just crazy how uh, at the age of 14, making the decision to go run can change my entire life in so many ways. What's up, everyone? That was Luis Grijalva that you just heard from. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I glean insight and inspiration from athletes, coaches, and other personalities to help show you what's possible through the lens of running. I also put out a weekly newsletter conveniently called The Morning Shakeout, which comes out on Tuesday mornings and features an eclectic and interesting roundup of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately. You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and your first issue will arrive next week. Okay, Luis Grijalva. I'm super excited to share this one with you, as this was the first podcast that Luis has ever done, and he's got a great story to tell. Luis is a 22-year-old Olympian for Guatemala and finished 12th in the 5,000-meter final in Tokyo, running a personal best of 1310.09. He now runs professionally for Hoka and recently graduated from Northern Arizona University, where he was a multiple-time All-American. In this conversation, Luis tells his story of coming to the U.S. as a baby, growing up in Fairfield, California, and how getting into running at the age of 14 changed the course of his life. He told me about his experience qualifying for the Tokyo Olympics, navigating the challenges of traveling outside the country as a DACA beneficiary, and what it meant for him to represent not only his home country, but over half a million other dreamers on the world's biggest stage. We also discussed his relationship with Coach Mike Smith, where he draws his confidence from, and a lot more. This episode of the podcast is made possible by Recover Athletics and the members of our Patreon community. Recover Athletics has worked with the world's best sports physicians and Olympians like Meb Kofleski to design an app that makes prehab fun and easy. In 90 seconds, the app will customize a program for your body and your training with different resistance exercises, plyometrics, and mobility work. No pills, no potions, no BS, just 100% evidence-based exercises that are easy to follow on your iPhone or iPad. I've been using the Recover Athletics app to keep my perpetually grumpy left ankle happy, and the combination of pre-run mobility and post-run band work and single-leg strengthening exercises has made a huge difference for me. You can check it all out for yourself in my Strava feed. I document all of it right there. The Recover Athletics app is available only in the iOS app store right now by searching Recover Athletics or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes. Your first custom prehab program is free and they have an unlimited free trial. If you like it and you want to upgrade, their premium subscription offering costs less than one trip to a PT. Trust me, it is totally worth it. The Morning Shakeout's Patreon community is where super fans of the podcast and newsletter can support my work directly 
interact with me, and also gain access to some exclusive content like the Weekly Rundown, which is a Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, a monthly Coach's Corner discussion where I cover training-related topics with a fellow coach or coaches, and other fun perks such as merchandise and behind-the-scenes sneak peeks that pop up from time to time. You can join for as little as a buck a week at themorningshakeout.com slash support. A big thank you to all of you who are already members. Your support means so much to me and will help keep the Morning Shakeout sustainable for a long time to come. Okay, let's get right into this one with Olympian Luis Grijalva. So you've never done a podcast. It really means a lot to me that The Morning Shakeout is your first. Louis Grijalva, welcome to The Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to share with my story and first podcast ever. So yeah, glad I get to do it with you. Have you been invited to a lot of podcasts? Uh, yeah, actually I have. And I think at the time, I just wasn't quite ready to kind of uh, share a little bit more about my story with myself. But um I feel like as a pro now, getting a little bit older, I think it's time to share a little bit about myself and kind of let people know who I am because, you know, I am running for a Hoka, a running company. And in some ways, I feel like I have to kind of market myself to put myself out there to like to have any fans to get to know me a little bit better. Yeah, it's almost I mean, it's like part of the job description now for an elite athlete is to get your story out there, whether you're sharing it yourself through your own channels or doing podcasts like this one. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like, I feel like <clears throat> it's crazy because, like, uh, the sport of running is so sometimes a little bit secretive and just close to the vest a lot of times. But um, I feel like for myself, I just want to, like, kind of put myself out there more and just uh, let people know who I am. Mm -hmm. Is that uncomfortable for you? No, not really. I mean, like, it's different when, when and it's in person rather than, like, social media platforms. But, um, I know you talk to any of my friends or any people that know me, like they pretty much say I'm a pretty open guy. Uh, just I make a lot of jokes, make have a lot of laughs with people. But um, no, it doesn't make me uncomfortable because I feel like this summer I had to go through a lot of it with the whole DACA situation at the time. But I mean, I think it's just how the way he looks at, like on it on social media uh, could seem like I'm a pretty reserved guy for sure. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about your relationship with social media. Before getting on to this recording, I had to stalk your Instagram profile a little bit just to see some of the stuff that you posted, maybe things we, we might want to talk about. You really don't post all that much on Instagram. You don't seem to be super active. What's your relationship with Instagram and any other social media platforms that you might be on? Yeah, um, I mean, I got I think I first downloaded Instagram when I was like a senior in high school, I believe. And kind of my relationship towards Instagram is just uh, like a lot of it could be really fun, but a lot of it at the same time is really fake, you know, like a lot of mm -hmm. people just post pictures to make themselves look really cool or kind of put themselves out in a typical way that people view them. And I think, I mean, yeah, you look at my post, I post maybe like <laughs> a couple of times throughout the year, but uh, I think for me, I try to make it look fun. Like I, I try to make people laugh on my Instagram occasionally, just some short one-liner captions and then just post a running photo or something like that along the lines. But I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, everyone's different when, when it comes to social media. People love it. People 
can make an image of themselves that look really good. And then other, other people can just, I don't know, I guess just different platforms can, you can use it in different ways to make yourself view yourself as a different person, I guess. Yeah. Do you feel like now that you're a professional, that's something that you're going to need to invest more time and energy in to get your story out? Or are you pretty comfortable with what your relationship to the platform looks like at this point? And you'll sort of just post when you feel like putting something out there? I mean, uh, yeah, I feel like I have to put myself out there for for my fans, I guess, like uh, this past summer, like I've, yeah, just the whole situation with going to Olympics just uh, kind of blew up my Instagram of just having so many followers. And I feel like I have a lot of fans from uh, the United States, but also from a lot of fans from Guatemala that who are really like interested in me and invested in me and kind of want to see what I'm doing, what I'm up to. So in that way, I kind of want to post a little bit more just to let people know, hey, this is what I'm up to. This is kind of an update on my life. And this is how things are going in my training or in my life at the time. But I definitely need to, I guess, step it up in terms for myself, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let's go back to your beginnings. You are a DACA recipient. You're from Guatemala. You grew up in Fairfield, California. What are your earliest memories of childhood growing up in Fairfield, which is just outside of Vacaville? Yeah, it's a little background story about myself. So when I was uh, I was born in Guatemala in the capital, so Guatemala City. And then mm -hmm. when I turned a year old, I actually moved to New York City with my uh, parents. And then we lived in New York City. I, think I lived in the Bronx for about three years. And then from there, we moved out to uh, Fairfield, California at the age of four. And kind of how it played out um, just growing up in Fairfield, California. At the time, uh, yeah, as a member, yeah, my parents both uh, just, they were, I think, yeah, just kind of growing up with my parents and just brothers at the time. And yeah, I think I had a lot of issues with uh, a lot of adversity because uh, Fairfield is kind of a city where it's uh, it's pretty ghetto, honestly. And I feel like sometimes people don't know what uh, where you come from. So I felt like growing up in the city of Fairfield, uh, I had to go through a lot just because uh, the schools weren't that great. I mean, like, I think there was no, I didn't do any sports until I got into high school because, um, yeah, the school district was uh, so poor that they couldn't fund uh, sports in middle school and elementary school. So not until high school, that's where I did uh, cross country and track and field. But um, for the most of it, uh, I mean, how I kind of grew up in Fairfield was, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's funny now because it, when I look back at it, like like I was a little punk back then. Like <laughs> I didn't care. I was just, just a different, different person who I was like trying to be. And yeah, I just remember just going the wrong, I could have gone into the, like the wrong path, but luckily running was there to kind of help me out. Before you got into running, who did you want to be? Like what kind of kid were you? Yeah, I mean like in middle school and elementary school, I got into a lot of trouble. I mean, I remember always be getting sent to the principal's office and then they were lecturing me because I did something bad or something kind of along the lines. And I mean, like I was getting into a lot of trouble and especially in middle school, like I think that's the time in my life where I definitely could have gone in, into a different path. And then kind of leading up to high school, um, I remember I was always pretty good running at the mile and PE. And then uh, one of the high school coaches kind of noticed me and then said, hey, you should come out for cross-country training and for the summer. And yeah, I just remember in a way running kind of changed my life because I always felt like I could have gone into the uh, other direction where I 
you know, maybe would have got a scholarship to NEU, maybe would have got a college degree or gone to the Olympics, all these things. But yeah, I don't know what I would be doing if I wasn't running. And it's just crazy how uh, at the age of 14, like making the decision to go run age 14 can change my entire life in so many ways. When you were a young kid growing up in Fairfield, California, how aware were you of your parents' immigration story and the opportunities that they wanted to create for you and the rest of your family? Yeah, it was uh, pretty significant because like, I knew my dad uh, came to America to have a better job for him to provide for his family and for, yeah, just to provide better income to support his family in better ways. And uh, at a young age, I kind of knew I was an immigrant um, coming to America. I mean, like uh, I started speaking Spanish. Spanish was my first language um, coming to the United States. And then I didn't start speaking English until the age of six years old. So, yeah, I mean, like kind of grow up in the school system. It kind of helps you out to speak English. But, um, yeah, I mean, I always knew I was an immigrant from the day we moved to America. I knew I was never an American citizen. And kind of with um, just a little background information of what DACA is, is um, DACA provides a uh, – it helps. So if my parents brought me here to the United States at a young age – it's not my fault that they uh, brought me here. Uh, so what the government does, the government protects people who were under the age of 18, I think by the year 2010 or so. And mm-hmm. it basically protects me. And so what DACA is, <clears throat> I'm allowed to do anything a citizen can. I can get a driver's license. I can get a work permit. I can get a job. I can do anything a citizen can. Except the only thing I can't do is uh, I can't apply for a green card or I can't leave the, the country. So... I got a young age, I always knew uh, I was an immigrant. And then DACA, uh, was the program was, in, uh, it, it was released in, uh, when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. Did your parents tell you about their lives back in Guatemala when you were growing up? Because since you've been here in the U.S. when you arrived, you were, what, a year old, I think, when you came here. I mean, you haven't been back. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been back to, to my roots where I was born and where I came from. And like, I always hear stories from my dad just telling me how life was growing up. I remember uh, my dad grew up on a farm, um, you know, worked a lot as a young kid just because he had to help with the farm and the family. And then I think my grandpa actually had 12 kids because uh, I think back then it was wow. really common to, to um, just have a lot of kids and then have the kids work on the farm. But um yeah, I just remember my, my dad had a little bit lesser opportunities because my dad didn't even uh, graduate high school in Guatemala. So, like, all his life, all he knows is just about work, work, work. And for him, um, yeah, I mean, like, school wasn't the best for him, but that's why he came to America to get a better job to provide for his family. And, yeah, I mean, he, he was the main supporter, and my mom had the job, too, to help and support the family. But, um I mean, at the time, like, they always loved the families, but Guatemala as a country itself, there's a lot of, like, the, the history of it is really bad and it's very corrupt in so many ways. And it's just a, a different lifestyle from what it is to America. Like, in America, there's so many job opportunities and, you know, the the police system is way better. And out here in Guatemala, it's just, just different. A lot of things are really corrupt. And, yeah, job opportunities were very limited at the time. Were you aware of your parents' work ethic when you were growing up, just seeing how hard they were working to provide for the family? I mean, yeah, my father was a, 
I call him a work alcoholic because he just like loves working so much. If like he doesn't, if he doesn't work, he doesn't know what else to do with, with his spare time. But I mean, yeah, I remember like growing up and even, even so now, like uh, my dad uh, always had two jobs working seven days a week just to support co- his family because we needed uh, income at the time. But yeah, he just loves working and it's like his work ethic is pretty strong because he just like every day he works every single day from like, I think he wakes up at 5 a.m., starts at his job at six and doesn't get out until four. And that's like pretty much every single day. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is just the immigrant mentality. I mean, speaking from my own experience or stories that I've heard growing up, my dad came here from Italy when he was 12 years old. So different situation than yours, but not speaking the language, not knowing anyone. I mean, my grandparents brought him over here, but my grandparents, my dad, my uncle, they're all workaholics. And that has definitely been, you know, instilled in us as kids, because that's what we saw. I mean, my dad would work full time as a plumber, and then he would always be doing weekend jobs. And I remember him just passing that message down that, you know, you're only going to get out of life what you put into it. And he just works really, really hard. And I feel like that's the case for a lot of immigrant families, regardless of where they came from. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my dad like didn't have a like uh, his English isn't very good, so kind of a lot, a lot of the jobs that he does are just really like a lot of hand, hands-on hands work. So it just always, I remember always coming to see his hands, and his hands would be like just like callous of just like all that hard work and just like a lot of blisters and stuff from working at, like at the car wash or like working at at a factory where he makes cabinets and and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but definitely that mentality is just as from a different generation. Like all they know is work, 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 and you work, you provide for your family for sure. Do you feel like that's been instilled in you? Um, in your own way? I feel like it's a little bit different for me. Um, like, yeah, like sometimes I gotta, I gotta realize that I'm pretty privileged just growing up in, in America and just like, uh, the amount of, uh, hard work and dedication my dad put into, into me is just, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he did it all for me basically. So, yeah, I got to realize sometimes that I'm very blessed and lucky to have grown up in America where like opportunities, you know, there's so many opportunities, you know, you graduate high school, you get a, a college degree. And for, for me, for myself is, I remember my dad always telling me like, like, listen, you're going to get a, a, a degree in college and you're going to go to college. And like, I don't want you to have a job that's going to always cause you to work every single day. And like, you're going to have blisters on your hands. Like I want you to get a job that you're really going to enjoy and really love. And Sometimes um, in the back of my mind, I always think of that because like in a way, my dad's telling me like, don't be like me, you know, be be better than, my, than, than myself and be better than me because I want you to do something that you really love doing. It's ironic that you get blisters on your feet now from all the work that you do. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. No, but that, that, really, that really resonates with me. I mean, as I just described, like my dad worked as a plumber his entire life. He's older now approaching 70. So he's, he's retired, but he still, you know, he still works part-time. So he doesn't know what else to do with himself. But he told me growing up because no one from our family had ever graduated college. That was what he wanted for me. And then I, I still remember this phrase to this day. He's like, I don't want you or your, or your brother and sisters to work with a pick and shovel. That's the way that he described it. Um, cause he worked with his hands too. Same thing, like just very, very calloused and, you know, his body's beat up from just years of like hard, manual labor and it's just it's interesting for me to hear you tell that story and just the similarities that are contained therein yeah i mean yeah um yeah i think kind of kind of similar too because i was uh, the first one in my family to ever get a college degree 
So, yeah, I mean, pretty similar stories right there. That's kind of cool. How did your dad feel about you graduating from Northern Arizona and starting your professional career as an athlete? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, like, I didn't think my my father kind of knew what uh, running really was. Like, I didn't know. I didn't think my dad knew that I could run for a living. So he thought it was just like a kind of a short term thing where I did it in high school, then got a scholarship to NEU, and then now uh, I didn't think he didn't know I could do that for a living. So for him to see me, what I'm doing for the past uh, eight years, to keep doing what I'm doing, it was just uh, I think he's really thrilled and excited that. Like you didn't know, like well, you can make money and you can still, you, you can still run, and you can still do what you're what you love doing, and I, I I just feel like he just enjoys that within himself so much and just like supports me in so many ways. When you were growing up, did you have any other family here besides your mom and dad and your immediate siblings? I mean, yeah, we had a lot of uh, so a lot of my dad's uh, brothers and sisters, so my uncles. They live in New York, but when we moved out to Fairfield, California, I think I had like a, a couple cousins. Yeah. And pretty much from there, like, yeah, I, I just grew up in Fairfield, California with them. And kind of how my background story kind of how it plays out is, um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, so when I first, so when I was five years old, my parents kind of split. Yeah, they kind of they divorced when I was the age of five, and then from there, um, I remember kind of the whole, like the questions you were talking about, like how it kind of circles back is like uh, the reasons why I feel like I could have gone to the other other path, other wrong directions because, um, so I had a lot of brothers and at the time there were my two older brothers and they were really, at the time uh, in Fairfield, California, it was really super ghetto and there's a lot of gang violence and I remember my brothers being in a gang too. So they had a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of influence from them because when you look up to when you see your brothers and you look up to them, it's like right. you, you kind of want to be like them because you're they're your older brothers and you look up to them so much and like wh- whatever they do might be stupid but it still seems really cool to you because they're they have that older influence and influence in you and so basically um, they were on DACA too but how uh, yeah there were a lot of they were in and out of jail so many times and. What kind of DACA is, is like if you're in jail a lot, they kind of uh, they, they kind of deport, deport people who are getting mm-hmm. in trouble with the law. So basically when I was at the age, you know, when I was in middle school, basically both my brothers were, were gone and they uh, got deported to Guatemala because of how much trouble they got in with the law. So, yeah. So after middle school, basically I just kind of grew up with my, my mom and my dad in different times, but yeah, it was basically by by myself a lot. I had uh, cousins to be there and help me and support me. But um, yeah, I guess when you have like brothers that you all you know is like from you know when you're the age of five, you have those memories of them, and then until middle school, you kind of realize like, oh, why are my brothers gone? So yeah, talk to me about the crossroads that you found yourself at at the age of fourteen and why you ultimately chose to go in the direction that you did. Yeah. So kind of with me is uh, growing up with my brothers who were kind of in and out of like juvenile hall and then eventually they went to jail. Uh, for me, um, I just had a lot of stress and the stress that it caused my parents to have. And I, I just remember my parents just always worrying so much and they were just really, yeah, just really always just so stressed out of like what's going to happen to my brothers. And 
like I, I, I seen like a lot of hurt that they caused my parents to have. And in some ways, like I wanted to be like my brothers, but in some ways, like I wanted to be better than that. I didn't want to cause that, that much harm to my parents or I want to be better than them. And it's funny too, because my brothers wanted, they were like, don't, don't, don't do what we're doing. Like we want you to do like, what's be better than us basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, kind of for me, it's like, yeah, definitely in middle school, even like a little bit of my freshman year of high school, like I was struggling to kind of maintain that, that, that righteousness like path of like, are either being in gang violence that's pretty stupid or like do running and just like have running friends and just go in totally complete different direction. And I think for me, for myself personally, I think if, yeah, if I wasn't doing running, I, I could have definitely seen myself going into the, into the wrong path. And that's why I'm saying like running is influenced, changed my life in so many ways from, yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you say that it saved your life? I think so. Like, yeah, I don't know what will happen if I didn't choose running because I feel like I could have gone to so many different paths and directions. But I mean, it definitely did change, uh, save my life in so many ways. Like, I started hanging out with the, the better crowd of, of people, you know, not hanging out with punks and just delinquents, I guess. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it just it caused me to have better friends and better friends led to. Um, better success in my academics, but also like in my running and then the kind of the way I viewed myself as a person. And, you know, I, I wanted to be a person where everybody respected and like, I, I just want to be viewed as like a respectable person. And I want to be viewed as like, Oh, that's Luis. That's like the punk who does this or does something bad. You know, I, I wanted to be respectful for, for myself, but also for, for my parents, I guess. And just, they, they came to America for me to have a better life. So why am I going to waste that all away? How did you find running or how did running find you? I'm interested to hear your origin story in the sport. Yeah, so kind of how I started is when I was uh, in middle school, I kind of noticed that every time we ran the, the mile in PE in middle school, I always noticed I was always like finished within like the top three or so of the class. And it was something that I was like really good at it. And it was really effortless, effortless for me at the time. And, um, you know, I kind of struggled with academics kind of growing up and like running was something that I was better than a lot, a lot of people at the time for at least for the mile and PE. But how I kind of got started in the sport is, um, yeah, I think I fell in love with it in PE and I was always winning. I was like, Oh, this is really cool. And then, uh, I remember, yeah, kind of the last day of, uh, of eighth grade year, uh, this high, high school coach from, um, Armio high school, uh, came up to me. He's like, Hey, we really noticed you. We talked to your PE teacher. He said, yeah, you're really good at running. Come join uh, the cross-country team in the summertime. And then, yeah, so summertime came along. And then from there, um, yeah, I guess I fell in love with it because I didn't know, like, people could run together as groups. And I was like, that's so weird, like, people running together <laughs> as teammates. And that's why I was really confusing. I thought it was just, like, you and yourself and see how fast you can go. But, Yeah. When you were in that PE middle school mile, what did you love about it? Did you love the act of running itself and how it made you feel? Or did you love that you were better than everyone else and it was something that you could win at? I think kind of a bit both. Like I love the feeling of just like going so hard and just working your ass off and, you know, being on the ground after you finish. But I mean, 
I mean, like beating people at the time, I guess, was just pretty special because, yeah, I guess in like in academics and some other sports, I wasn't the best. But uh, knowing that I was the best in this particular mile race, I thought it was special. But yeah, I think for me, I, I loved it because like all you really need is just a pair of running shoes, maybe even shorts. I wasn't even running with running shoes at the time, but all you really need is just your legs and shorts. And that's all you need is like, it's not like where it's basketball or soccer or football where like you need like certain types of equipment in order to play, you know, it's a free sport, you know, you could do it anytime you want to do it. And it doesn't require like special, special skills where you need at like, like for soccer players, for instance, like it's better if you play soccer at the age of five, so you can develop these like, motor skills in order to be better when you get older in middle school and then you progress in high school. But in running, it's funny because it's a sport where you can literally start whenever you want to start and then you can be good at it. Did you play any other sports as a kid? Uh, I remember always going outside and just like playing soccer. And I think I really liked soccer, but um, the school districts were a little bit too poor at the time to uh, have any clubs or teams and then plus my parents couldn't afford a club team at the time but um no I just remember being outside all the time and just playing like playing ball and just like being outside like 24 7 and I mean it was back then so like <laughs> I think now and now when kids are growing up they're like in their tablets and they're on the phones but yeah, I mean I didn't ha- like yeah back then there was no phone so I was always just outside until like 10 p.m o'clock at night just like running outside and doing whatever I want. I used to live in these apartment complexes where uh, there were so many kids in this apartment complex where everyone would just be outside like almost every single day. But uh, yeah, I just remember liking soccer a lot, but could never get really good at it because I didn't have the basic uh, uh, intro skills to kind of learn how to dribble the ball or just like kind of like learn how to shoot. But no, no other sports. What did that early success in running do for your self-confidence at the time? Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think it was just awesome. Cause like, I remember always seeing like some people who were really good at basketball or like soccer and they do like these amazing like tricks and like know how to dribble the ball really in a cool way or do different styles of it. But I, I always thought it was cool, but I think running in terms of like my confidence, like I think it, I, I don't know. I think it's just, uh, it made me really excited and happy about myself because this is this thing where I'm really good at it. And like, I don't know else how to explain it, but it just brought my confidence up really high because I guess for me, I like beating people. And when I beat people, I get really excited because like, Oh, like I, I like the feeling of the competition and I like pushing myself as hard as I can. What was the transition like to Armijo High School? You mentioned how you joined the team. You didn't even know that you could go and run with other people. And now you're on a team. You're training specifically for these races. What was that period like in your life? It was, it was awesome. I, mean, I made some new friends and just was hanging out with a different type of crowd. And I think for runners, uh, the people who are in the sport with themselves are just a little bit different like they're more especially in high school I feel like a lot of high school uh, runners are pretty nerdy and pretty geeky but I, I feel like that's like the type of crowd I was hanging out with for, at least for my cross-country team but um no it, it was really cool because like I remember the first day of practice I I was I didn't even have uh I think I was wearing Jordans <laughs> for uh for the first day of practice and everybody was looking at me where I was like oh where are your running shoes <laughs> like what do you mean running shoes <laughs> 
Dude, I love that because when I, I started running in high school too, I, I didn't start running till my junior year, but it was to keep in shape for basketball. And I just started in my basketball shoes because that's what I had. I didn't even know that you had specific shoes just to go out and run in. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I didn't know there was like um, specific shoes that you run for but, or running shoes. I didn't know there was running shoes at all. So when everyone was looking around me, he's like, oh, what are you doing? What are you wearing? Like even the, the coach was like, like, where's your running shoes? Like, this is my running shoes. But I, I just remember, yeah, just fitting in really well. And I think uh, growing up in Armio High School was uh, different because um, it's really diverse. So there's uh, there's just so many different types of people from like, like I think for myself, like when you think of when I think of cross country uh, in America, at least I think it's a white white. Uh, white sport, you know, that's really, really dominated, like, you, especially in college scenes. But like, I remember at the time, like, everyone was just so diverse. And I feel like I was fitting in really well, because, yeah, like, it was just different. I felt really comfortable with the people I was hanging out with. Yeah, yeah, you didn't feel out of place in that environment at all. Yeah. What was the team atmosphere like at Armio? You mentioned how it was a diverse team. Did you guys have a big team? Was cross country a popular sport? at the school like help me to understand what the environment was like yeah so the environment was like the school itself armio or Fairfield as a whole was really ghetto at the time and um yeah i mean like i feel like joining cross country was kind of at the time was kind of like the geeky nerdy sport you know <laughs> like i think everyone like loved doing football or doing soccer right but the kind of kind of the feelings that you got from joining the army or cross country team it was um Luckily, luckily enough, we, we had a really good coach who kind of knew what he was doing. He like, uh, I think he ran at Baylor University and then uh, ended up knowing a lot about the sport and running, David Monk. So he kind of helped me and guided me in the right direction of like kind of putting myself out there and trying to become a better runner, but also a, a better person, a better teammate. So I think with the sport itself um, at Armio, it was just, it was just different. Like, I, I don't know, like, it was different from anything else I, I did. It was just like, I think cause it, it was so um, structured. Like the program we had mm -hmm. was really structured. Like, you know, Mondays are workout days and then Wednesdays are workout days. It was just, I was more like in a routine in high school than I ever was growing up when I was younger. But it taught me how to have a routine, but also just manage my time well. Mm -hmm. Did you start to see that kind of discipline and routine spill over into other areas? of your life? I mean, yeah, definitely. Like growing up, I wasn't the smartest person. And I, I struggled a lot during academics, but like in order to be eligible for uh, high school sports, you needed a, a 2.0. And my GPA at the time was like a 1.7 <laughs> for the first semester. And then I remember my high school coach seeing uh, my GPA and I remember him like screaming at me, like, you're not going to be able to be eligible in the springtime for uh, track season. So I remember getting my grades up, but it just taught me to be disciplined in terms of like my life all around. I had to be disciplined in my academics and then I could be disciplined in my running, but also be kind of well-rounded throughout my entire life, making sure I'm in, I'm happy and making sure I'm doing everything right in order to be successful, I guess, in running. You ended up having a very successful high school career, but when did you first start to show some talent. I mean, you showed some in middle school and they noticed you and told the coach like, you know, hey, we, we got this kid, Luis, who loves to run. He's really good at it. But did you have success right away when 
you got into high school or did it take a little bit of time to get the momentum going? I think it took me a while to get the ball rolling. I mean, like in high in middle school, I ran the mile in five five minutes and fifty nine seconds, which I thought was really fast at the time. But apparently, now like so many other middle schoolers, <laughs> go under five minutes in the mile. But I just didn't know too much about the sports and know if that was fast or not. But um, kind of how my progression started in high school was um, like my freshman year. I think I was in these JV cross country races where I was running right around twelve minutes for uh, two miles around the cross country course and. I didn't even make the varsity team actually my freshman year for cross country just because it was just it was just so hard like everything every practice felt like it was an all out like effort and like even easy days felt like really really hard like running continuous for 30 minutes felt like it was a really big challenge but uh i guess i started to have a lot of success kind of my freshman year of high school uh of track season where i ran 433 in the 1600 meters and then i ran 956 for 3200 meters and then kind of from there, it was kind of a progression where every year I got faster and faster and faster. So I think my sophomore year, I ran four four eighteen for the 1600 meters. And then it wasn't until my, uh, my junior year where I started making. So in California, it's really hard to make the state meet. So I didn't make the state meet until my junior year, uh, junior year high school. So, but yeah, it was kind of a progression. I had a really good coach at the time who kind of make sure we weren't doing too much or doing a little bit, a little bit too little, but he kind of made sure we we're in the right paths for max success to have a really good career in, in college. And I mean, I ran 407 in the 1600 meters my junior year. And I think by, by my senior year of high school, I ran 402 in the mile. So yeah, I think for myself, where, why a lot of people don't know me too much in high school is because I feel like I was under the radar because, uh, during, during my class, my year, there was a lot of people who were running under four minutes in the mile or right around that four minute miles. So I feel like I was under the radar for most of uh, my time in high school. And then uh, luckily Coach Smith kind of recruited me from there and just, yeah. Talk to me a bit about your relationship with Coach Monk in high school. Did it take you a while to just buy into his approach and his, his system or were you kind of hooked right away i'd love to just understand a bit about that and maybe how your relationship evolved over the course of your time there yeah so yeah um i think monk was really good at, like you know you ever see those movies where like some high school coach or some coach like has these really uh motivating speeches where like you really like rides you up and he was kind of like one of those one of those guys from the movies where like like it was unreal every time you heard him talk he was just and saying like he motivated he motivated people in so many ways that like yeah it was just life changing like for sure like he uh, was super excited about the entire program like not just because you were the fastest or the slowest like I remember um, some girl broke eight minutes in the six hundred meters and he started crying because that was a really big achievement for her and yeah he was kind of definitely just really motivating and really knew like what he wanted me to do as my as I grew up in um, as my progression in high school, and yeah, I felt like he he was kind of like a father figure for sure. Like he inspired me in so many ways, but always wanted the best in me. And what like what I think of when I think of David Monk is he always taught me to become a better person, not just uh, a better runner. Which I feel like it's really good nowadays because he wanted the best for me in so many ways, and I feel like. At the time, he helped me throughout so so many times. And when I was growing up, I remember this one time where 
like, yeah, I could just literally just call him anytime I want and he'll be there for me no matter what and kind of protect me and make sure I was doing all right. And like, even the way I like kind of the worst moments in my high school time and where I was really like a lot of uh, diversity, I mean, adversity happened to me when I was growing up in high school and he was always there to making sure I'm okay and making sure I'm, I'm good, basically. Would you mind sharing a specific story of how he was there for you during a tough time? Yeah, the specific time when I uh, was in my sophomore year of high school where, um, yeah, so my brother who got deported and lived in Guatemala City for a couple of years, like changed his life around completely from what it was in the United States and to what it was in Guatemala. He had a job, everything was like looking in the right direction and everything's really good for him. And then uh, one day he was just like walking outside his apartment where he got involved in a drive-by shooting and uh it wasn't intended for him but he just got caught in the action and then he passed away and then oh, i'm sorry to hear that yeah and then basically yeah when i heard the news like i called them and he was basically there for me for the like whole next like three months or two months or so yeah i remember it was just really tough at the time but he yeah, he was like there for me and make sure I was like in the in the right place and right mindset and like I remember him emailing all my teachers like hey like this is what happened to Luis make sure he's okay like it's okay if he misses school work for a couple of days but we're gonna try to help out Luis in so many ways but the way he kind of brought out the team the whole like cross country team with me it was really special and yeah I just thought it was really unique how he did that like he brought the entire team he brought the entire team together just to support me and. Yeah, he took care of me for those next two months for sure. Man, that's an incredible story. I mean, I think just in general, we need more high school coaches like Coach Monk who care about the kids as as kids first and and athletes second because he obviously had a very big impression on you at a very formative time in your life, and that stuck with you through today and made you the person that you are. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was – I feel like sometimes college coaches get, I mean, high school coaches get caught up in trying to run all these fast times and they kind of make it about the high school coach more than the high school students. But yeah, I remember he's always just fully supported me and always made it about me, which I really like that a lot because it is about all about the athletes in high school, you know, especially uh, from the age of 14 to 18. Like those four years in high school, like kind of really define who you are and you're really kind of like he kind of guided me in the right path to set me up for yeah. the future. When you were in high school experiencing the success that you were in running, I'm thinking back to what you described earlier that your dad wanted for you to, to go to college and to not have to work a manual labor job when you got older. How were you thinking about your future at that time, did you see running in your future or did you have another path that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, definitely. I wanted to pursue running. Like I wanted to be like all in on running. And like when I, uh, like when I got a scholarship to NEU, like I think he was mind blown. Like, <laughs> like I could continue running, but also continue like my education and get a college degree. And like, once you get a college degree, you're kind of set yeah, a lot of more opportunities later in life to get a job. But yeah, I kind of knew I wanted to be all in on running. I mean, as soon as I joined it in 2013, like I was like all in it for it. I really liked it. And 
like the cool thing about running is the people that you get to meet. And like, yeah, in high school, I had like lifetime friends who are, who I now still talk to today, hang out with. And every time I go back to Fairfield, I'm always like hanging out at their houses and just uh, talking with them. But yeah, from a young age, I knew like from since I started um, running in high school, like I, I knew that's like what I wanted to do for a career. And I remember doing more research on running and just like seeing all the like the kind of professional track leagues and circuits that people people did. And I always thought that was like pretty awesome. What was the college selection process like for you? You mentioned how you kind of flew under the radar because there were a bunch of kids your year who were breaking four minutes in the mile, even though you had run 402. Obviously, you got a full ride to Northern Arizona. Coach Smith had had his eye on you, but was there a lot of interest from other schools? Yeah, there was a lot of interest in other schools, but I feel like my education and background of like knowing what school was good was, I, I think I was really unaware of like which program was like good. Cause like, yeah, I mean, there's like over 300 plus division one colleges and it's kind of hard for me when I think you're seven, when I was 17 years old, trying to pick in this high school because like all you get, like all these schools are sending you letters like, Oh, come here and you'll be really good at running. But I feel like for the most of it, I was really unaware of like how the NCAA system worked for, for running. Like, like, yeah, I, I didn't know too much about cross country in college and I didn't know too much about track and field in college. And, uh, kind of, kind of the recruiting process was, I remember like, uh, there was a lot of people trying to do home visits and I remember talking to them, but nothing was really interested. And for, for me, for myself, I had to kind of be realistic what I wanted. And at the time, um, yeah, like, at the time, which is pretty funny, kind of a little bit background story, but uh, David Monk, so my junior year of high school, he actually ended up uh, leaving Army O because he got a got a job at Sacramento State University. And so he was the head coach there. And then uh, I remember actually emailing uh, Coach Cornfield, uh, who was the assistant coach at, or the volunteer, or the grad assistant at NEU at the time. And I remember emailing him and then I got in contact with Coach Smith and then from there, I remember just like being on the phone with Coach Smith like every every week, and then up until he came to to my house, and then how I kind of rounded it off. I was talking to a lot of universities to, on the phone, but uh, then Coach Smith took uh, took a home visit with me, and then like yeah, he met my mom, and he met my high school coach, other high school coach at the time, Carl, and uh, he kind of had a lot of good things to say. But I think he was just really interested in who I was and. I kind of told them a little bit of my background and kind of the type of person I was. And I think he was just really interested in, in me in a lot because, <clears throat> yeah, they, they, were just, they were just coming off uh, their first NCAA national championship win. So I'm pretty sure they could have recruited anybody in the nation that year. But, yeah, for me, uh, I think it meant a lot when Coach Smith came, came home to my, uh, came to my house and we, we spoke. And he had, had a lot of good things to say about, like, NEU and the whole program and, I guess this philosophy of training, but basically it was down to Sacramento State and NEU. Did he remind you a lot of Coach Monk? Uh, in some ways, yeah, he, he, he did. In some ways, he didn't. But it was a little a mixture. I mean, like now, like Coach Monk, yeah, he's a really, really good coach. Like he loves, <clears throat> like he loves working with athletes. But it's it's more to it than just running. You know, he likes building these relationships where which I feel like it's really important, especially in college, to build a relationship with your coaches and with the athletes to build a, a great foundation of like, of like, and more than just a coach, but a really good friend. 
you mentioned earlier in this conversation how from a very young age you were aware of your DACA status. Did you start dreaming about the Olympics in high school or did you just think that could never be a possibility just given the situation that you were in? Um, yeah, so at the time, uh, you know, in the back of your mind, like every time you run, like you try to look up to the highest pinnacle of the sport, which is the Olympics and then that next best achievement. And for the time that I always thought like, oh, it'd be so cool to go to the Olympics. Cause I feel like that's like every runner's dreams, like one day to go to the Olympics and represent your country at the Olympics. But I feel like for me, um, it was just really difficult because I didn't know if I would be able to get outside of the country, the U S. So for me, it was really challenging. Cause like, I mean, even at the times, like the times to run the Olympic standards were really hard. And I didn't know if I had that ability within myself to, to do that. When you were growing up in Fairfield, did you leave California much or were you someone who generally just stayed close to home? Cause that's where your family was. That's, you know, where your community was, that's where you raced and competed or, you know, did you, did you travel that much outside of California, uh, when you were growing up? Uh, no, not really. I think we just stayed in the state. Like I didn't get out. I didn't think I, I didn't leave another state until like when I was in my senior year of high school where I got invited to go down to Washington and Texas for some races. But I remember most of my time was spent just in all throughout California, like Lake Tahoe area to like Los Angeles and kind of all the up the coast of the entire California. What was the transition to Flagstaff like for you? Um, I would say it was just different. Like, uh, you know, like, first time leaving home was really big for anybody for sure. But also just like, I, I guess the snow was really, really big. I mean, <laughs> coming from California where most winters yeah. are like pretty mild and they're at like 60 degrees and then coming to Flagstaff as a freshman where the temperature gets up to zero sometimes. But yeah, it's, I think the weather had a big impact for sure. It made things a little bit more difficult, but also like, yeah, I guess the people too, like just, hanging out with myself with a different type of crowd of, of, of runners. Mm -hmm. How was the crowd of runners different when you got to NAU? I mean, I think it's different because, I mean, I feel like Fairfield is a really diverse place where there's so many different types of people from different ethnicities and different cultures and whatnot. So uh, coming to NAU was kind of like a shock in a way, which is kind of crazy because, I mean, I feel like NAU right now is pretty – diverse team when it comes to the NCAA cross country teams around uh, America. But yeah, I mean, it's just a different type of crowd in terms of like, uh, yeah, just like, I mean, I'm going to be blunt, but it was like a lot of like, like literally 90% of the team was all white. <laughs> and I felt like at the time in the cross country team, I think, I, th I think it was only me and someone else who were a minority. Yeah. So unlike at Fairfield where, you know, you felt like you fit in because you saw a diverse lineup of people in Flagstaff. On the contrary, you felt like you, you stood out. Yeah. I just felt like I stood out a lot and I was always used to like seeing, seeing just different types of people for sure. And coming to, coming to Flagstaff was just like really bland. Was that really hard for you at the time? Not that it was hard or anything. I never got bullied or anything because of my, uh, ethnicity or race or anything like that but it definitely just felt um you're just aware of it i was just aware of it and sometimes yeah. a little bit out of my comfort zone just because 
I, I felt like I got along really well with different people who were uh, a minority or just different types of people in a way. But I think mm-hmm. for my, myself, um, it was just different from like kidding not like going to uh, Armio High School was like just so diverse with just different like different types of races where coming to a college team is just it's pretty bland and just like everyone's like the same basically yeah not to jump over too much but since we're on the topic now that you're a professional athlete and you have much wider visibility and especially here in the u.s there aren't a lot of other latino men who are pursuing competitive running at a high level do you feel a responsibility to represent those folks and to encourage younger kids who grew up in an environment like you to you know to explore running or get involved in the sport i mean yeah i'm like i mean if you look at the ncaa as a whole and you take the people who are in a, a cross country and track and field team uh i feel like there isn't too much representation of uh latin people like me and um I mean, like in a way, like I remember I used to look up a lot to Leo Manzana because he was mm-hmm. a, a Mexican runner who got a silver medal in the Olympics. And like, I remember him being one of my idols because coming from a little bit about his background, yeah, he grew up in Mexico, was an immigrant and then moved to the United States and then became a citizen. But I always thought it was pretty cool, like looking up to Leo Manzano because he was just, uh, I guess, influenced me because he was like, oh, that's a, a Latin runner. If he could do it, then I could do it. And he kind of inspired me too because yeah there's not too much representation of uh, latin runners who or in who run in college bringing it back to your time at nau when did you first start to feel like things were clicking for you as an athlete but also when did it start to just feel like home in a place that you saw yourself being for the foreseeable future yeah yeah so when i when i joined uh the NAU team in 2017. Um, I feel like your first year as as a freshman in college is kind of a freebie. You get to do whatever you want. You have no expectations, and there's no there's not too much uh, stress on you because it's your first year in college, so you have that excuse. This is my first year here. I don't know what I'm even doing here. But um, yeah, I think definitely with my running kind of my running side of my running relationship is, I realized that I was added a lot of talent in running, but. I always kind of knew how like I was talented enough to make it in NCAs as a freshman, but I could never perform and compete at an NCAA meet until my junior or until my senior year of, uh, of college. So what, what I found out with my running at NAU is I was really talented, but I was always, how do I say this? Like I wasn't taking ownership of my running, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. Like I was at that talent to get me by to make these NCA meets, but like talent you only get you so far. And then yeah. it wasn't until my uh junior year where I started changing my whole entire like script of like how I competed as a as a runner and how I was competing in my races. It was just completely different because yeah, if you look at my freshman year, I made NCA I made NCAs in the fifteen hundred and I got dead last in that race. And then you look at my sophomore year, I made the indoor national meet and I got 14th out of 16th. And then I ended up getting 16th place in the 5,000 meters for the outdoor national meet. And yeah, I, I was always talented enough to make the NCAA meet, but I didn't have, I didn't take 
I took granted for granted for granted at the time because I feel like I relied on my talent too much. I feel like yeah, I feel like I, I relied on my talent too much for that to kind of make a nas- national meet. But I feel like for me, for myself personally, like things didn't start changing until my junior year of uh, of college, where I kind of took ownership of my own running and kind of wanted to be better. I wanted to be good at the sport. I didn't. I didn't just want to be like a average all American who just makes NCAA meets and gets eighth place or not eighth place. But I wanted to be one of those guys who's in contention to win a national title and kind of be up there with the crowd. And yeah, I, I, I think I took that ownership of running my junior year of that track season. Let's go a little further down that road. What flipped that switch for you and made you decide that you wanted to take more ownership of your running? Yeah. I mean, in 2019 cross country nationals, we got second as a team and that kind of hurt a lot because, you know, coming into the program where they won the year before I got there and then we won in 2017 and 2018. And then you have all these expectations on trying to win another title, but then we, we get second. And this, that was honestly kind of one of the worst uh, feelings I ever felt at for running in this, in this sport, because yeah, you have all these expectations coming in, like we're going to win and this is going to be given to us, but then we get second and we, we got our ass kicked by BYU that day, and that 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 really changed me in so many ways. Because like I remember putting in a good summer worth of of training, and I was really putting a lot of work and effort. But then, like at the day that it mattered most, I ended up getting fifty second at the NCAA meet, and like I remember heading into that track season just super devastated. Like I did all that work, and all that work didn't show for anything. But then, once we stepped into that track season, it just flipped the whole entire switch of how I competed as a runner, but also how I competed like in racing. Like I wasn't scared of racing anymore. And yeah, I had a really good track season that year where I ran 1329 in the 5,000 meters and I ran 743 in the 3,000 meters. And like, I found that I was just really invested within myself. Like I really wanted it so bad that I was going to do anything to get it. And yeah, I mean, we did we did so awesome. Like, I think our team was in contention to win the indoor NCAA title in 2020, but then it got canceled. But yeah, those those next couple of months after um, 2019 cross country just changed in so many ways. What kind of changes did you make? Was it mostly mindset, or did you make some lifestyle changes as well? I think just mindset. I think it was all just mindset. I mean, I was still doing the same training, still working out, but just my mindset just changed completely like how bad did I want it and like like I said I took ownership of my running and I just wanted to see how I didn't want to be average in the sport you know I wanted to be really really good in the sport and I just wanted I wanted it really bad and I don't know I think it's just whole mindset mm-hmm. were these just conversations that you were having with yourself inside your own head or would you ever discuss it with coach Smith or your teammates I think within myself too, but also Coach Smith and like I remember reassessing after the 2019 cross country champs and like he was asking like what happened and I, I was telling him like I don't know I don't know what happened I just didn't have it with in me that day, but it just taking ownership of your relationship towards running and it's it's funny because um, in 20, 20, yeah in 2019 that indoor season when I was a sophomore in college. I ran a 3K where I was right behind the rabbit and I was really scared to run with a rabbit, you know? And I was like waiting for other people to pass me because I didn't go with a rabbit. I was just afraid. And then a year later, kind of the same race happened where I was right behind the rabbit 
And I was like, I don't care if I run behind the rabbit, I'm going to run behind the rabbit and just push the pace. So I think I'm just, it was just like a completely different mindset of learning how to compete within myself, but also other people around me. You know, with that mentality, stepping to the start line and be like, all right, there's no bad races. It's either going to be great or it's going to be good. Does that feel like putting extra pressure on yourself or do you find by embracing that mentality, it allows you to compete with more confidence. Definitely, I think embracing that mentality just helps me out in my running, in my, how the way I treat racing. Because, you know, ever since my senior year of college, like I don't ever remember like blowing up and getting like last in my race, or you know, blowing up and running like, fifty seconds off my PB, or not learning how to compete. But, you know, I think the way Coach Niv trains us is he trains us to be ready for when the day, when it matters the most. So I think the way his training philosophy works is we're going to, we're going to have a good workout or a good race anytime we step up to the line. And I think that confidence just kind of helps me out a lot because, I don't know, I don't, I feel like some people in the back of their mind, they're afraid of, they're going to blow up or something's going to happen or some outside external force is going to happen to them. But I think for me, learning how to race within that range of being great or good, is super helpful for me because I, I know what's going to happen in this race. I know my range of outcomes of how am I going to be able to compete. Where do you draw your confidence from? Uh, I think I draw my confidence from... I guess training sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think training just helps out a lot. Like knowing that I build a base of so many miles and for the base training, but also like having some killer workouts. But I think the the weird trick is with like training at like 7,000 feet at altitude, it's just really, really different from training at sea level. I mean, like there could be days where um, I'm having like kind of the kind of, I, I just feel so bad or the, the workout splits don't look sexy. And there's some days where like, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to run this, run this pace in sea level. But then like when you drop down to sea level, like it makes a world difference from 7,000 <laughs> feet to, to sea level. Like it makes a complete difference. Like, you know, like running my threshold up here is like, you could be challenging up here sometimes, but then running threshold at sea level, is like a world's difference. Like it feels way easier. I feel like I'm more within myself and I'm not pushing as hard to run the same pace. It's just, I guess that's the whole point of training altitude to push yourself to the limit, but definitely for my training, for sure. How has your training evolved in the time that you've been in Flagstaff? Yeah, so it started kind of as a progression where, you know, Coach Smith was really careful in terms of developing me to make sure I didn't, I wasn't burnt out or I didn't overdo it my freshman year and make sure I was um, successful my freshman year of college because like you know you got to think about it my first time away from home is my first time with coach smith at neu so you he, he made he made sure the the transition was really really easy and he, he didn't give me too many miles at all but it was definitely a progression from how i started from my freshman year where i was running like 60 to 70 miles per week and then my sophomore year we kind of ramped it up to like 80 miles a week and then to my junior year we were like around 80 to 90 and then senior year kind of in the same same boat but it was just a progression like Kushmiff didn't make sure 
we're doing things really too hard or really too fast early on. But he was just really careful to making sure uh, I was doing okay first as a person rather than an athlete. And like, it's pretty tricky here at altitude because like your body's so tired here, like all the time, like you're constantly like tired and exhausting. Like even easy days feel a lot more challenging, especially the first couple of years at in Flagstaff. Like I remember just struggling like on easy days or like 7.30 pace for a mile for easy runs felt really challenging and really hard. But like now where I've been developed, where I'm now versus 18 years old to 22 years old, like I can run 6.30 pace and feeling pretty effortlessly. So it's just different. I mean, like the longer you stay at altitude, obviously the easier it gets. And then you kind of know what to expect from altitude. But um, it just seems like every year you get better and better in your own running career. You get more developed and to a certain point. And um, no, Coach Smith was really careful my freshman year, making sure, like with all freshmen, of course, you know, first time altitude, first time away from home and, and all these like circumstances. You finished up your eligibility at NAU last year. You signed a pro contract with Hoka. You've decided to stay in Flagstaff and be coached, continue to be coached by Coach Smith. Did you think about leaving it all or look at any other groups that you could potentially join? Or did you know that that's where you wanted to be because you felt at home there and it was working for you? Yeah, so I think it's really challenging, like, coming out of the NCAA and into the pro world at first. Cause um, yeah, as soon as you're done competing for the NCAA, you're basically kind of like on your own, like you get an agent. And then from there, the agent kind of gets you these contracts from different companies. And then from there, it was just, it was really hard. Like making that transition to staying here in Flagstaff and staying with Mike was really tough for me because yeah, I mean, I was getting recruited by other companies and then other companies had uh, these really good groups that, that meant like that I'm sacrificing a team group effort or am I going to be an like, individual working with Mike? So for me, it was really challenging because I was giving up a really good group or I was giving, giving up Mike <laughs> and I knew Mike for, you know, the past four years I work, he knows what works best for me and I know what works best for me. And like, we have definitely have that relationship where like the past four years, our bond, I feel like it's been really stronger and, yeah, I look at Mike, not more so of my coach, but more as a friend and kind of a mentor kind of looking out for me. And like, honestly, <laughs> it's kind of, honestly, I feel like it's, if, if you, if you're getting coached by Mike Smith, I feel like it's hard leaving Mike Smith for anybody else. Like I personally think he's the best coach in the world, but not, not just because his coaching philosophy, but just he, like, like his character, how he kind of, like his character is so strong. Like he's, I don't know. He wants the best for you in terms of like not running related goals, like making sure you're a better person, making sure you're doing things right and kind of challenging you, challenging you in ways to make yourself a better person or making sure you're thinking the right things for sure. And yeah, it was really hard. I mean, I was talking to other coaches too, but I mean, it was really, I feel like it was really hard to leave Mike because I think we built that connection for the four years at NEU. And also I had to consider like, all right, do I want to be in a group? Um, in a group context related way or do I want it to be just with Mike and yeah as soon as I said no to the group it was pretty easy going with Mike but yeah I mean honestly <laughs> I don't know if like it just I think for people to know in the circumstances like once you get coached by Mike I feel like it's kind of hard to go from Mike to anybody else like 
it's it's really challenging. And like I remember I was talking to one of my friends who ran at NEU and he was telling me like, yeah, man, like when I was getting recruited in this process, like it was really hard to uh, leave Mike and go to someone else. Just not because of his coaching philosophy, but his character. Like that's a guy that I want to get coached by. That's a guy I want to be have like a mentor kind of figure, but that's a guy I want, I, I want to surround myself with. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I imagine it's got to be tough on his end too, because his main job is to coach the NAU teams and that's full-time plus. I mean, you know, running never really stops. I mean, I guess in the summertime, most years athletes are just training. They're not racing as much, but you know, he's got a responsibility to the school and the team. So he can only coach, you know, a, a handful of professional athletes. So it's like as much as every athlete who has the potential to continue their career after college wants to stay with coach Smith. It's also not realistic in a lot of ways too, just because his capacity is pretty limited. I mean, yeah, like obviously like his obligations or his number one is always going to be in you no matter what, you know, that's it. That's like his baby. That's like his team right there, you know? So obviously he's going to take care of any you as much as he can. He's going to put, that's going to be his number one, no matter what, you know, which it should be his number mm -hmm. one, you know? But I think the transition's been pretty good. Like we've been, like you know, I've been running with Rachel and Ellie and our kind of little, little semi-pro group, or not semi, but our little little pro group, mini group is, um, yeah, it's working out really well. Like, and yeah, we have a good, like I know how I know I have those, I know I have Ellie and Rachel to like rely on to keep me accountable to do my drills and strides, and occasionally we meet up for like our little double runs, but. No, it's been fun so far. Like I meet with Coach Smith four four times a week or so, three times a week. So yeah, it's been pretty special. I mean, like I still get a lot of one on one time with him. So yeah, I mean, other than the fact that any is his number one priority, it's still a really good transition. And like I have people to make it feel like more of like a team, a little mini group team. Mm -hmm. So I, that was my next question: Has it been a hard transition just not being in that group slash team? environment like you were every day for four years at NAU as a student athlete? Um, at first it was. Like the first like, couple of weeks, kind of getting adjusted to the to like, non, the non-NAU uh, college system was a little bit mm -hmm. difficult, but I mean, I mean, in some ways it's, it's just, I'm still in Flagstaff, which is probably one of the best places to run in the world. I mean, there's so many forest service roads to go out there and run, but I feel like Flagstaff's a type of place where there's so many runners here you could just connect with from different groups or from different different people who are just trying to run and trying to do the same thing as you. So I find it for myself is pretty easy and actually might even be, be a little bit funner or fun because yeah, I, I kind of get to have my own schedule and kind of kind of get to decide who I want to run with or who do I want to work out with and so, occasionally sometimes, but. It's cool because I get to meet up with anybody I want to run with who's a pro in town. And like occasionally I can run with any of you guys too. So I find it kind of best of both worlds where, where I could run with any of you guys occasionally and then I could run with other pros in town. So not everything's on my own, but it's still really fun to kind of have that freedom, have that schedule of like, you know, getting to run with people and then having different types of conversations with people. I think that's, that's what's been making it fun. Like I have a little bit more freedom now than I did in college because in college I kind of had to stick to a routine where I had to meet for practice almost every single day but then the way we kind of structure it is we meet uh three or four times a week and yeah mostly you know I could do the easy runs on my own but on the easy runs I get to run with anybody who I want with in Flagstaff so 
I found it really interesting to do that here. And yeah, it's, it helps me out a lot because I'm not just running by myself. Have you had a hard time filling your free time now that you're not going to class and on a full academic schedule? Um, at times, yeah, it's really challenging. And I feel like I'm one of those types of person who can't just be sitting in the house all day or otherwise I, I don't know, go a little bit crazy. But um, the way I think of it when I think of running professionally, especially if it's my job, it's like it's my job to kind of just sit and rest and just kick up your feet on the couch. And sometimes I have to be okay like just sitting on the couch, like I remember the first couple months of my professional running career, like, like, oh, I don't know what to do. I have so much, so much free time and you go do this and you go do that. But like, I need to tell myself like, Hey, it's okay if I just sit on the couch and do nothing all day. Like that's the type of lifestyle sometimes it may be difficult to have. Cause I feel like the first couple months I was really struggling with that. Like just sitting around the house and doing nothing. But I feel like in a certain type of way, if you really want to be really good in the sport, you kind of had to, give it all in your running, but also in your recovery. And sometimes yeah. just sitting on the couch, you could tell yourself that's okay. It's part of the job. It's, yeah. It's part of the job. And like, yeah, I mean, it's not a college routine anymore. I remember in college, you got, you have classes, you get out the house more and you go to your class and you meet for practice like almost every day, but it's just a different type of, yeah, it's just different. I have so much free time to do whatever I want. And yeah, I mean, sometimes it sucks because like, let me, I don't know. <laughs> sometimes it sucks because like, sometimes I want to do more than just sit on the couch, but I have to remind myself like, Hey, it's okay to sit and relax. Aside from just, you know, sitting on the couch and, and resting because it is a big part of your job. What other interests do you have outside of running that you pursue when you're not at practice or heading to a race? Yeah. I mean, it's just different. Like, like if you ask me that question, if I'm not running, if I'm on break, I literally get to do whatever I want. You know, like, like I find it really enjoying to like, like just go outside and like do all these crazy little, little trail hikes or like go down to the Grand Canyon and do a little hike. Or like every time I, I, I'm on break, I go to California and we, we, I get to do like these amazing things. like go to Lake Tahoe and like go camping for a couple of weeks and like do all these things I can't when I'm not really like full on force running, but yeah, I mean, it's different. Like when I'm on break, I get to do whatever I want and I have more freedom because I don't feel bad or I don't feel like, oh, if I do this, if I go on this hike, I'm going to trash my legs. But yeah, it's just different. Like I feel like when you're on full force training mode and like right now I was running like 90 to 100 miles a week and that was really, that was really hard on me. And I feel like you're running that much. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to do other things, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, just hanging out with friends, you know, who are around town and occasionally going out to dinners with people and then just, I, I guess, mo mostly just hanging out. Like, I don't know, I feel like I should pick up a new hobby, like learning how to play guitar or something like that, because <laughs> I have all this free time. But sometimes it's like, I don't know, like, I feel like if you're running a lot of miles, sometimes you're really tired because, you know, you think about how your schedule works, if you're running over 90 to 100 miles a week is... Like, yeah, you run in the morning and you kind of wait around for the second run and then you second run. But, but by the time you do your second run, it's already like the evening. You got to make dinner and then it's already a new day, you know? But I mean, I definitely needed to pick up a new hobby and like start. <laughs> like, I think learning the guitar would be pretty cool and learning how to play that. But I guess other from that, just like catching up phone calls with family members and 
you know, watching some TV, I guess. Like, I mean, what else am I supposed to do as a runner? <laughs> what did you study at NAU? I, I studied communication studies. Yeah. Studying communications, did you see that as something that you could pursue whenever your running career was over? Or was there something about that particular field of study that, that interested you? Uh, I think for me, it was just, um, I don't know. Like, I feel like people always tell me, like, as long as you get a degree in college, as long as you get a degree in college, you'll be fine, you know? Like communication, mm-hmm. I, I like communications because there's like a lot of writing and then like just a lot of group communication, just like collaborating with other like classmates and just basically just talking a lot and making sure you're in the right doing. It was just a lot of talking. That's what I like doing. I like talking to people. I like making new relationships with people. But I remember people just always telling me for like as a job career, like when you're 18 years old and you're trying to make a decision of what you want to do when you're yeah after, right after college, it's like really, really challenging must be probably one of the hardest things because you're 18 years old and you're trying to decide your life, but (laughs) at 18 years old, which is kind of unfair because like, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 18 years old, but I remember people always telling me as long as you had a degree, you'll be fine. You don't have to necessarily work for that major degree, but you could do any other things. And yeah, I always found out like, as long as I got a degree in something in college and I'll be fine. Yeah, I think that's true probably for anyone except doctors, lawyers, and accountants. Because that was my, I mean, that was my experience as well. I ended up majoring in philosophy with no idea what I wanted to do with philosophy. I knew that I wanted to run and probably do something in running. And here I am now, you know, hosting this podcast and coaching some runners and writing a newsletter, uh, that sort of thing. But I mean, I had no idea what I was going to do with a philosophy degree when I was, you know, 20 one years old graduate. I'm like, I don't want to go to law school. Don't think I want to go to go to grad school, but you know, I'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was the same for me. Like I didn't know what I would want to do when I was 18 years old, but like good thing I have running to kind of back on and kind of carry me, carry myself for a couple of years. And then after I'm done running, I think I want to, <laughs> then I'll decide what type of career I want to have later on. But I think the cool thing about running, there's like so many opportunities where there's a lot of open doors where you could just, like you said, you could be a coach, you could run a podcast or you could work with a, a shoe company or kind of other things along the line of, of running. Yeah, I agree with all that. But just hearing you describe like what you liked about communications uh, and this being your first podcast where you're sharing your story in great detail. I hope this is a catalyst for you to share your story in more places because I find it super interesting. I know people listening to this will find it super inspiring and and who knows, maybe this will be a, a launching point into you just becoming, and I don't mean this in a career sense necessarily, but let's just like a storyteller in in different ways because I think, you know, there's there's a lot to you and to your to your story that I think people can learn from and be inspired by. I mean, yeah, I mean like yeah, especially how I kind of grew up throughout my childhood and all the different uh, things that I go through were that were really difficult. But I don't know, like also just like knowing where I came from, from my background and knowing what I kind of did. Like, you know, I went from living in a ghetto city to, you know, getting a scholarship to a college and then from getting a scholarship to college to running at the Olympics. I think that was just, I think I do, I do have a really good story to tell. And then, definitely need to critique it and kind of turn it down a little bit. But I mean, that's what I want to do. I think as a runner, especially like running just a, like if you're a competitive runner, like you only have a, a certain amount of time for that window to be a good runner. But 
I feel like for me, I kind of want to help inspire people. I want to help inspire as many people as I can because, you know, I feel like I, I got to give it back because I feel like I got inspired by a lot of pro runners when I was in high school. But also, I feel like I got I had a lot of people who kind of guided me in the right direction. And I feel like I want to give it back to people who are in similar situations where they might have the best opportunities or outcomes to be where they want to be at. But yeah, I think I just want to inspire people and. I think I could do that with my running, but also with my story too, not just about running. In the time that we have left here, I want to take a little bit of a pivot and talk about your experience at the Olympics. And to start, I'd like for you to just describe the emotions that you felt after running 13-13 to finish second at NCAAs and get under the Olympic standard and realize that going to Tokyo was a possibility for you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was bittersweet to like, uh, I guess second at NCAAs, but at the same time, I still ran the like Olympic standard 13 minutes and 13 seconds, which is really, really incredible, you know, to like think about that, especially like in a championship race where, you know, I think I ran my fastest when it mattered the most and I did that at the championship race. So I think I really value that a lot. But I mean, yeah, it was incredible. Like um, as soon as I ran 13 13, like I knew there was a possibility of me going to the Olympics. Like Guatemala already selected me for me to represent them at the Olympic Games, but the only issue is I wouldn't be able to go to the Olympic Games because of my whole DACA status and my immigration situation. So um, how that kind of played out, the whole story kind of played out with my whole DACA and going to the Olympics is, uh, yeah, as soon as I signed with Hoka and Ray and Flynn Sports, they kind of helped me out a lot. So Hoka, which was really cool, they had a, a, a immigration budget for my in my contract to kind of help me with like a lot, of, a lot of legal fees which i think was pretty cool i don't think i ever heard of that too much in other contracts no that's super cool yeah. that, that is not common at all yeah so they gave me a little budget on the side to kind of pay for a uh, lower fees for Im- immigration stuff so basically how that kind of happened is i got in contact with a with a friend of mine who does a lot of photography who's a immigrant himself and he kind of gave me this contact of a lawyer named Jessica and Jessica is an immigration lawyer and that's kind of her bread and butter kind of DACA and immigrant stuff. So uh, I talked to her on the phone and she had really good things to say about kind of her professional and her business. And then I told uh, Ray Flynn about it. And then as, as soon as I told Ray Flynn about it, he contacted her and then they talked on the phone and like he seemed really confident that she could get us in. So then, uh, so then Ray basically paid her for, uh, the, the fee and as soon as we paid her as soon as we uh processed the fee it was pr- basically all all jessica's like she did like pretty much everything which is really incredible i mean yeah it was it was it was crazy because so with this daga permit right it takes about six months in advance to get noticed that you're going to be able to leave the country you know and then i didn't hire jessica until july 1st so I hired her in July 1st, and then my first race in the Olympic Games is August 3rd, you know? So so you had like a month. Yeah. So basically, I had a month. So I hired Jessica on July 1st, and then from there, it was a lot of back and forth between a lot of like just paperwork, making sure I had the right, correct, like IDs and all these visas, and on top of that, passports, and then from passports, like all these, making sure when I first arrived to the States, uh, all this, like a, like a stack of so much documentation about myself and it was it was crazy like the amount of back and forth we had to we had to do but yeah so jessica was like 
on the case. And then uh, Ray didn't know if I would be if I was going to the Olympics or not. But so he booked my flight uh, three days before I, I got the permit. So not knowing that I was going to go to the Olympics or not, he already booked my flight. But kind of how the whole uh, situation happened, how it kind of blew up all over social media is that um, somebody made a post about me because I, I kind of keep a lot of things close to the vest. And yeah, yeah. as soon as I kind of told people about my stories, it be uh, word got out. And I feel like especially now, like with this new type of generation, like a lot of people like a lot of social ju- social justice. And yeah, I feel like my story kind of exploded because somebody made a uh, made an Instagram post about me. And then from there, I had all these like interviews from different from like local newspapers to like uh, to different like uh, TV and all these other interviews. Like it became from like local city to bigger city to the state and then to the nationwide. That's how like back. Yeah, it was national news. Yeah, it was, it was national news for 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 a while, and it just exploded in so many platforms and. Like as soon as as soon as somebody made that platform of 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 a story about me, like it just blew up on social media. Like, like I got so much support from so many people who I never spoken to ever in my life, and people I never knew. And like it was amazing to see all that support, like all these runners and non runners in the community trying to help me out to get me to the Olympics. And then we had to get a lot of contact with uh, a lot of senators in Arizona. So I actually got in contact with Mark Kelly, who's a senator in Arizona, and he kinda, Arizona, yeah, yeah. So he kind of helped me out in the process too, but basically Jessica was really scared that we weren't get we were not going to get the permit in time. So then she flew herself out here from California, and then we met each other in Phoenix. And then that morning we went to the USCIS office building, and we were there for like six hours. And yeah, we were there for six hours making sure we got the permit. And the way how it works is the USCIS you need a uh, you need an office appointment. And we didn't have an office appointment, so it was really difficult trying to get into the building at first because of COVID protocols and everything so super strict. But eventually, we got inside the building, and then we had to go through so many people. We had to go through the security, and then we had to go through the security guard. We had to go through the like just the receptionist because people didn't know what was going on until eventually we got in contact with the the guy in charge of the USCIS building officer building. is It's really complicated, but basically, as soon as they saw us, they were like under a lot of pressure, and then. Yeah, we got the permit then, and then like two days later, I flew out to Tokyo, not knowing if I was going to go or not. What was that whole experience like for you in in Phoenix? Were you just anxious the entire time? Were you excited and optimistic? I'd love to just kind of understand where you were at emotionally during that time. Yeah, it was really stressful. Like, like I remember driving down Phoenix uh, like at ten o'clock at night and sleeping at, at a friend's house, and then waking up at seven a.m. and going to the office at 8 a.m. And yeah, it was just really difficult because like I was under, the media was under a lot of pressure, but I was a lot of pressure too, because for myself, like uh, I got to think about it, like I'm running for an entire country and all these people from Guatemala respect me to run at the Olympics. But also at the same time, like all these people want me to go to the Olympics too. So I just, in some ways I feel like a little bit overwhelmed, but it was so cool to see so many people like reaching out to me and I think I already got a thousand plus messages on like on Instagram and it was insane how much people supported me and like it blew up all over social media. Like it was, yeah, like it blew up so much that like, I kept getting like literally, I kid you not, my messages were a thousand plus like on, on my Instagram and it was just so overwhelming, but it was pretty special having that support from people. But once we got to the U S 
USCIS office building, I was just really scared because like I didn't know if it was gonna happen, you know? Like it was just so stressful and and yeah, as soon as we got we talked to the boss of the USCIS building, he get he like gave us the final approval and it was just like a lot of back and forth between us and the USCIS office building and then for the for the Phoenix office to get a final approval, they had to get contact with the Dallas with the office in Dallas. So it was just a lot of back and forth people not knowing what's gonna happen or not no not knowing what's gonna go on basically. But I mean, yeah, as soon as I heard the news, I was like just unbelievable. Like it was so exciting, like it was incredible. Like <laughs> like you know, for me, for myself, like it's the first time ever leaving the country outside of right. being born in Guatemala, but going to Tokyo was really incredible. But yeah, I got the permit on Monday and then I left on Friday to go to Tokyo to if it hadn't worked out the way that it did and they didn't approve you to travel, what would you have done? I mean, I don't think I could have done anything. Like, <laughs> like if I would have just been stuck here, I was, would have been stuck in America. Like if I, yeah. if the, if the, um, if I didn't get approved, then yeah, there's no way I would be able to go. Cause the easy part about DACA, you can leave the country, but it's hard getting back into, into the country. So that, that was mm -hmm. just the, like in a way I'll be self-deporting myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I knew if I, I knew I wasn't going to go unless I had the, the final approval. But then once I got the final approval and then stepping into that plane to, from San Francisco to Tokyo, like just felt so unreal. Like, I, yeah, I just like 14 year old Luis just felt <laughs> like my mind was blown. Like 14 year old self would have been crying right now. But <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing the news and just like, calling all the people who kind of helped me out throughout the entire situation and just kind of bawling my eyes out because, you know, it was bigger than, than myself for sure. Like it's not just me, but, but for also like other DACA recipients, you know, mm -hmm. but I think the crazy thing about my situation is I was the only one in the world <laughs> probably going through that situation. You know, I was the only DACA recipient going to the Olympic games. What did it mean for you? to not only represent Guatemala at the Olympics, but to represent over half a million other dreamers who are in the same circumstance as you. I mean, it's pretty special. Like in a way I get to be kind of a leader in some type of way or a role model to people who, who are, who are on under DACA. And I feel like I want to, you know, like DACA, honestly, like too many people didn't know what DACA was until Mm -hmm. my story kind of came out and then i got all my friends and other people texting like oh i never knew you had you were under daca or i never knew what daca was so i think for me it was really good but also for other half a million people to kind of get more aware of what daca is and how in in some ways we we don't have that many opportunities like for for instance leaving the country or even applying for a green card but the government does protect us to be here in the country legally but i mean also just being able to represent an entire nation was pretty incredible because yeah, I think I was the only central 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 and South American to make a final in the Olympics. I think for at least for in the distance events. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there a path to US citizenship for you or is that something that you'd like to pursue in the future? I mean, yeah, there is. A, I mean, the, the only way to get a citizen is to get married to an American woman, but <laughs> I don't see myself getting married anytime soon, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, it just depends on the whole entire administration. 
of what the uh, the Biden administration does for my situation. But right now, I'm kind of in limbo right now, trying to trying to wait to see what happens with uh, people who are on DACA. So it's just waiting to see what's going to happen in the in the future. But for right now, yeah, I just have to wait and. If I ever want to leave the country again, I would kind of have to do the same process. Like, let's say the world championships are in somewhere in Europe. I would have to get the same process done every time I leave the country. But other than that, no, like (laughs) the easiest way is to get married, but (laughs) not anytime soon. (laughs) Would you like to visit your home country of Guatemala someday? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I think Guatemala itself, the country is really beautiful. Like, like in the middle it's surrounded by like all these mountains, and then on the on the coast, it's surrounded by uh, volcanic volcanic sand beaches, which I think is really cool. But the Guatemala country itself is just so pretty. It's like high up in the mountains, and like the whole country is basically at elevation. But I guess also just not aside from the like scenic views, but also just getting to see where I grew up from and kind of where I started, kind of where my roots roots were formed. But also getting to meet like family members that I've never seen before or kind of knowing where my dad and my mom kind of grew up from. Back to Tokyo. I just have a couple more questions before we wrap this up here. When you got there, what were your goals heading into the Olympics? The 5,000 meters has qualifying rounds and it's not easy to get to the final. Your first Olympic games, first time racing internationally, what did you hope to achieve in your time there? Yeah, so it was just a really difficult process because, like, yeah, like I didn't know I was going until like three days after my flight w- was leaving, or three days, yeah, three days after, yeah, before my flight was leaving, whatever. And it was just a really difficult process because, yeah, like I got the permit on Monday, and then three days later I left to Tokyo. And when I got to Tokyo, I didn't realize how hot. Tokyo really was like the humidity there was like just really really hot like it was almost as yeah, close com- complete opposite of Flagstaff <laughs> yeah I mean coming from Flagstaff it's probably one of the driest places in, in the in America but yeah I was not doing any preparation at all for humidity training at all like yeah it was really difficult but I knew for myself like I wanted to at least to make the final in the Olympics and I thought it was pretty special and like I don't know there's something from like I didn't just want to go to the Olympics just to go to the Olympics, but I wanted to do something at the Olympics, you know? And I think for myself, going to the Olympics was the first person ever in Guatemala history to ever make a final in, like, in, in anything, in any forms of athletics. So I know making the final was my biggest goal there for sure. And then I just remember being racing that first race in the prelim and just getting, that was probably one of the hardest races ever. Like the, the prelim was a lot harder than the final. I think I ran 1334 in the prelim and that race felt so, so, so awful and so hard because like it's just a different type of racing because here in America, it's really easy because like you could just pass someone, people let you pass and you're fine, you know, but at the Olympic Games, they're just way more aggressive. Like everyone just really, is really out there. Like they're throwing elbows at you. They don't care. They won't let you pass and like you're running in lane two for the most of it because you're not trying to like you're trying to be ready for the move. But like, I remember in the prelim just getting bullied around by all these like, other athletes. And like, I remember every time I tried to make a move to go to the front, I, like I'll be in the front for a couple meters. And then after the, the straightaway or the, the curve, I'll just get passed by like five guys or six guys. 
but kind of my experience with that is just <laughs> like it's just so aggressive running internationally with other foreigners and it's just a different type of feeling from racing from in America to to um I don't know, at a competitive world stage and that was just really it's like a college basketball player going to the NBA yeah basically it's just yeah so it's way more aggressive but definitely my main goal was to make the final and I remember uh, talking with Galen Rupp. He was actually in Flagstaff, and he were on the same flight to um, to Tokyo. And he was like, "Yeah, man, like this doesn't mean anything unless you make the final. So you got to try to make that final." And luckily enough, I was like the last spot, last person to to squeeze in and make the final. Did it feel like a relief to make the final? In a way, yeah. Honestly, like, yeah, it was like, a lot of pressure. Obviously, like getting all that paperwork done and having all these people supporting you and like you kind of want the the kind of you want the dreamer's dream to to kind of keep continuing and keep going so i feel like i was under a lot of pressure not just from for myself but as a country as a whole but also from people who are undaunted dreamers and people who kind of supported me through the to get their final approval but it was definitely definitely just the prelim was way more stressful than the final you know, because I wanted to qualify so bad because I didn't want to, I wanted to go to the Olympic finals that, that bad, you know, that's that's how much it meant. I wanted to represent my country to the fullest and to the best that I can. And when I hurt, when I'm hurt, like when I crossed the line, the finish line, I didn't know if I was, if I qualified or not. Like I didn't know for 10 minutes and I was just like kind of limbo, kind of going back and forth. Like, did I make it? Because like, they showed the first uh, nine, nine person results, but they didn't show anything else. So yeah. I mean, it was making the final. That's the, the biggest goal for sure. I remember watching the Olympic 5,000 meter final. And before the race started, the camera panned across all of the athletes on the start line. And you were right on the rail, first spot, lane one. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, and now that I have the opportunity, I want to ask it, what was going through your mind in that moment when you were standing on the start line of the Olympic final in Tokyo? Yeah, it was... It was insane because, yeah, like it was unbelievable that I got there. The whole situation, how how it portrayed from like, you know, being my dream since I was like fourteen years old, running a freshman year in high school in twenty thirteen. So like, like I really took in that moment within myself because I remember standing on the line for like five minutes before racing, and like I remember just like looking around like the entire stadium. There was like no one there but a couple of the of people who could be there, but. Yeah, I just remember like looking around, and I remember just seeing the, like the Guatemalan flag, um, like on the on the top on top of the the ceiling of the stadium, and I just remember looking at that for a majority of the of the time. But it was just incredible. Like, like never thought ever in my life that I would be able to make an Olympic finals, and be there on the starting line with like world record holders to the best runners in the world. It was just like my mind was so blown, and like it, it felt unreal for sure. Like, yeah, I feel like I was, I was dreaming basically. And how about to come out of it with a personal best running 13-10 in not ideal conditions against the best athletes in the world? Yeah, I mean, I, that's what I was really most impressive. So like my last two races or two 5,000 meter race other than the prelim at the Olympics, like uh, I ran a PR and kind of where I talked to Coach Smith is what's really big is like, we don't really do that many time trials where, where we go after time after time. Like if you look at my NCAA career, uh, my last six months, I didn't 
I didn't really race or do any time trials at all. I just got some regional marks and then I made a nationals. But I think we really valued that year of having our best performances at championship races where it matters the most. So when I ran 13-13, that was my PB. And then when I ran 13-10 at the Olympic finals, that was like incredible because yeah, kind of going into the field, I definitely, I think I had the slowest PB <laughs> out of all the guy, out of all the, the 16 guys who were in the race. And yeah, I, I just thought that was pretty special because I learned where, what I was struggling with my freshman year, my sophomore year, a little bit of my junior year was learning how to perform at an NCAA meet or at a championship race. Like I always get blown out the waters every time I competed at those bigger meets, but like it wasn't until my senior year where I kind of quite fully understood how to race at a championship race, which for myself, I really value that more than anything. Like I PR'd in the Olympic finals where, where it matters the most, you know? And I think the special thing about that that was really cool is I think I was the only person to get a PB in, in the in the race. I mean, granted, like <laughs> like all the other guys have like a lot faster PBs than I, but I think it was just so awesome to have a PB where it matters the most. But also the about that thing too is like the conditions were really hot and humidity. So what I feel like a lot of people don't understand is that like like it was really humid in Tokyo, but outside was humid but as soon as you entered the facility into the olympic stadium i felt like it was like five or six degrees hotter inside than it was outside yeah so it was just <laughs> way really really hot did you walk away from that with the confidence that with a little bit more time a little bit more work and a little bit more experience that in the coming years you can be in the mix in that type of race yeah definitely i mean like i, I I feel like I definitely could be in the mix of the race for sure. I mean, like, not to see my own horn, but like, I was the only one in that race not wearing super shoes, <laughs> you know? And I, I know that super shoes is like a whole different talk and topic, but I don't know. I just feel like with better. Mat- it does make it more impressive. <laughs> yeah. I feel like with better maturity as you get older and the, you know, the more I develop as a, as a runner and just the better I get continue my career running eventually I'm going to get better and better. But I don't know. I just feel like with Hoka, they're going to have better technology of new spikes and new technology is going to help perform myself with to the best that I can and be on a, on a certain scale on the same playing field as everyone else. But yeah, I think in the future, like, I mean, I just got a taste of what the Olympic games were at 20, the age of 22. So imagine when I'm like uh, 26 for the next Olympic games or when I'm, I don't know how I were old for the next couple games. Like I'm just really excited to like, like race at the world stage, like our world champs or the Olympic games. Like, like I'm just really excited to race internationally, like against, against athletes like that. That's what I'm really most excited about. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just incredible that yeah, I made the final first, I think it was the first Central American ever to do it and first Guatemalan ever to do it. So that's what I'm really, really amazed. Yeah. I love it. I've taken way more of your time than I originally asked for. I have one more question before we wrap this up. What do you hope that people listening to this conversation take away from your story? Yeah, I mean, I hope I can inspire somebody or somebody who's in a similar situation or kind of a little tell them a bit about my background story. But I mean, that's kind of how myself is way more to it. You know, this is kind of, you know, reading a few pages of the book. But no, I feel like I have a story to tell that can 
that one day is going to inspire a lot of people. And, you know, I'm a really great guy. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm pretty humbled and, you know, I'm maybe close to the best at times when it comes to like social media platforms or the way people might perceive me. But honestly, yeah, I'm just a professional runner. I just want to inspire people to do really amazing things. And kind of how my story played out is I had a lot of diversity growing up when I was in growing up in high school, middle school. But I mean, man, if like if a, I could do it, if, if a dreamer can do it, then anybody else can do it. You know, that's the whole situation. Like I had a lot of uh, negative outcomes in my life that became positives, you know. But and I just want to inspire people. That's 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 all, all I want. I mean, like I told a lot, I told some people in my life the story of how I grew up and kind of how this situation played out. But I just want to. You know, I don't want to be selfish and keep this all to myself. I want to let people know who Luis Grajava is and what I've dealt with. Because it is a unique, different story from most people. I feel like one being like having a pretty hard childhood, but then also being a dreamer too. I think there's two completely different stories that are really uncommon and different for most distance runners. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Luis, I've loved having the opportunity to hear your story. I'm excited to share it with other people. I'm really appreciative of your time, and I thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks, Mara. Appreciate it. Okay, that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. A big thank you to Recover Athletics and the members of our Patreon community for making this episode possible. Recover Athletics has worked with the world's best sports physicians and Olympians like Meb Kofleski to design an app that makes prehab fun and easy. In 90 seconds, the app will customize a program for your body and your training with different resistance exercises, plyometrics, and mobility work. No pills, no potions, no BS, just 100% evidence-based exercises that are easy to follow on your iPhone or iPad. It's available only in the iOS app store right now by searching Recover Athletics or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes. The Morning Shakeout's Patreon community is where superfans of the podcast and newsletter can support my work directly, interact with me, and also gain access to some exclusive content like The Weekly Rundown, which is a Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, a monthly Coach's Corner discussion where I cover training-related topics with a fellow coach or coaches, and other fun perks that pop up from time to time. You can join for as little as a buck a week at themorningshakeout.com support. Just a few more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales and Jeff Stern for the editorial and social media assistance. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep this ship afloat. Finally, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for an annotated collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>